Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 16. We've been going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're at chapter 4. Let me, uh, let me read it. This is the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us and uh, we'll get started. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for technology that enables us to uh, read and hear from your word, uh, even virtually. And uh, we pray God that um, you know, from our homes, uh, uh, that your spirit would be at work, that even though uh, we're not gathered uh, in the same space, we are gathered at the same time. And uh, would you maximize that sense that we are sharing this time together, connect us by that, uh, that this is something that we get to experience together from our homes, and help us to hear from you and what you have to say today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, great to see you. I uh, hope you had a good week. Uh, as I mentioned before, we are looking at the book of Ephesians because Ephesians is about the church. And what we've been saying is that the gospel does more than just bring individual salvation, um, although it does do that. But the gospel also has this uh, corporate effect in that it creates a new humanity or a new people, which is the church. And this new humanity uh, brought together two groups of people who were historically hostile towards one another, which were the, the Jews and the Gentiles, and bound these groups together in unity. And therefore, the implication of the gospel is that where there was once hostility, there should now be unity, because that is ultimately what God has done and accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I think these days, it's, it's, it's not, or it's easy to imagine um, how difficult unity is because there's so much conflict, there's so much division, there's so much polarization. Even if you just read the news about things that are happening uh, in the Middle East or uh, even the season that uh, we seem to have gone through with all the uh, turmoil, um, there's been a lot of 
conflict and division. Uh, we haven't seen a ton of uh, unity, I don't think, at least uh, in the media or at least in the news. And you can tell that this is something that's on people's minds because uh, at least I'm starting to see a lot of books coming out trying to diagnose this problem of why we are so polarized. Uh, there's one author who says uh, we're so polarized because people are lonely. Another author says there's so much polarization because political affiliation has become much more important as an identity marker than it once was. Another person will say it's because of the of social media and algorithms and they're creating these echo chambers and therefore people are only hearing uh, ideas that reinforce what they already believe. And, you know, there's all these ideas out there of why there is so much uh, polarization. But I think for our purposes, uh, we're not diagnosing that, but we can just say uh, it's easier for us to now imagine how two polarized groups, uh, the difficulty of these two polarized groups of coming together. And therefore, I think a natural question is to ask is, is it really possible to have unity when there is so much hostility, even if these two groups or these two people uh, are Christian believers. And I think if you are a Christian, the answer has to be an affirmative. The answer has to be yes, because we know uh, from places like Romans 5 that even while we were still hostile to God, even while we were still enemies to God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so if the gospel can reconcile God to himself, which is this vertical uh, dimension, which is the biggest wall, then certainly the gospel can also recon reconcile us to one another. And to deny this is really to deny the pow powerful reality of the gospel. Ephesians 4, it begins this section where Paul starts to take this like lofty theology, uh, this cosmic theology, and now it starts to come to the ground level. And he shows us what's necessary or what's required to work towards making the visible church reflect this invisible spiritual spiritual reality of the, the oneness of the church. And uh, there's this commentary uh, by John Stott. And John Stott gives this outline, uh, uh, which I'm going to take from him, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit. And uh, he, what he says is this passage shows us uh, three things that the church should strive for. Uh, the first thing is charity. The second thing is unity in diversity. And the third thing is maturity. And the passage breaks down nicely like this. So we'll look at those three things. So first, charity. Uh, a long time ago, you know, when I was looking at different denominations and, uh, you know, eventually we settled on the Christian Reformed Church, but uh, I was just looking at, you know, different options for joining a denomination. And there was this one denomination that had this ethos on the front page of their website. And what it said is this, and I, I don't think it's unique to this denomination, but it said, uh, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And what they were trying to convey is this. You know, there are things that are non-negotiable uh, with respect to Christianity because what it does is it, they, it fundamentally alters the core of what Christianity actually is. So it would be things like maybe the nature of God or the gospel, uh, things like that. And in those essentials, we have to be united. But then there are also these like little disagreements within Christianity that wouldn't necessarily be fun considered fundamental to Christianity, uh, such as like views on baptism or things like church polity. And uh, we should be able to exercise our Christian liberty in those things. But then the third statement, whether or not they are essential or not essential, God is still calling us to be charitable towards one another. But what does that really require of us? Well, 
if you look at the first verse, Paul, he exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And then he lists these several characteristics. He lists humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. And right off the bat, that, I think that tells us how difficult unity is because it requires things that people generally struggle with, especially when it comes to uh, these kinds of things with whom we disagree, with people whom we disagree. And uh, just think of the last time where you were in a conversation with someone where you had these like really deep disagreements with. Uh, the way these kinds of things go um, when things get a little bit heated is usually like this, right? You, you try to get your point across and um, rather than kind of listen to the other person's point with a sense of empathy, uh, maybe your tone becomes uh, offensive or maybe defensive. Uh, maybe you couldn't wait for the other person to finish their point. And so you just keep interrupting them and then they keep interrupting you. And maybe you end up kind of dismissing them as being just irrational people or stubborn people or some other label that can categorize that person in such a way that reinforces something must be wrong with them and not with me, right? And if that's how the conversation went, then it did lack the characteristics that Paul mentions here. Uh, but maybe that conversation actually ended up being productive and restorative. And maybe you did try to listen and understand the other person's point of view with empathy. Maybe your tone was gentle and soft. Maybe you were able to admit areas in which you were wrong and demonstrated that humility. And if in the end you still disagreed with the person, maybe you still saw that person with respect and dignity and decided that even in spite of your disagreement, you still love that person. And if that's how the conversation went, then it really does embody the characteristics that Paul mentions here. But you can imagine that the kind of uh, difference that humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love can have on two people uh, who have disagreements, you can kind of imagine the kind of direction that a conversation can go based on those characteristics, right? You know, it's possible to maintain a relationship in spite of uh, that disagreement. And I think. Uh, those of you who are married, I think you know that you won't agree with your spouse about everything, right? Um, I hope I hope we're not the only ones. <laughs> I think you will have disagreements with your spouse. So uh, over time, you know, maybe your values and perspectives will start to align, but there will always be areas of disagreements. You know, even with COVID, uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm curious how many... Uh, how many disagreements there were within families about what kinds of activities were acceptable or unacceptable. Uh, I'll, I'll share about our family. I would say between my wife and I, my wife is definitely the more uh, cautious one. So if you want to meet with somebody, meet with her, right? Because she's uh, very cautious. And I think before like the vaccinations happened, this is what she used to make everybody in my household do. Uh, if we came from the outside, no matter what we did, if we come from the outside immediately, we got to go to the shower, right? Take a shower. <laughs> uh, when we, when I would like get uh, groceries or something and we would actually have uh, groceries delivered from fresh direct and, you know, they drop off the packages. It's like no contact delivery. They drop it off in the front and then I would go and pick it up from the front. She would not let me bring the, the bags inside. <laughs> so she would say, no, no, individually unpack the groceries from the outside. So I'll be like, are you, are you serious? She's like, yeah. So I would take like everything individually and put it in the, the refrigerator, put it back in the cupboards. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so unnecessary. But she kept insisting on it. And uh, when I didn't do that, right, she would tell me, because there were times where I didn't listen to her. I was like, no, this is ridiculous. I would just bring the groceries in. 
and uh, she would be very displeased with me, right? Now, even that kind of disagreement, it looks different, right? If there is humility, uh, if uh, I can consider that, hey, maybe she's right, right? At the time, there weren't as many studies about the spread of COVID on, on surfaces. So, hey, maybe she's right. Maybe this is helping the spread. Uh, I should have been gentle because uh, I know, well, she has a genuine reason to be nervous and anxious. Uh, I should have been patient because, uh, you know, other people process anxieties at uh, different rates. And I should have been able to bear with her, even if uh, ultimately she ended up being wrong about the groceries, because at the end of the day, I care about the relationship and I love her, right? That's, uh, that's what I should have done. But uh, what I really did, I, I kind of just rolled my eyes. <laughs> I said, that's ridiculous. And it invited some thick tension into uh, our household. Uh, you can guess, um, you know, uh, the way things typically, you probably experience the way things typically go when you disagree. And uh, the difference between embodying the things that Paul is talking about versus not embodying those things and what that does uh, in terms of unity. So charity, that's the first point. Second, <clears throat> let's talk about unity in diversity. And this is where I tweaked uh, John Stott's outline because he made unity and diversity like separate categories. But I actually want to keep them together. I think unity and diversity should go together. Uh, and here's why. What is unity, if you really think about it? Uh, <clears throat> I think maybe more often than not, we probably tend to settle for a cheap counterfeit definition of unity that goes like this. Uh, unity is when there is this common agreement about something, uh, common interest, uh, right? These just commonality. But I, I don't think that's really unity. I think that's more uh, uniformity. And when we have uniformity rather than unity, you actually don't allow for differences that go outside the bounds of whatever standards uh, are, whatever the standards are for that uniformity. Uh, uniformity is oneness without diversity, but I think unity is actually oneness within diversity. And there's a good theological reason for understanding unity like this. Uh, first, that's what we actually see in God himself and the triune God. And almost all the commentators point out that in verses four to six, Paul is alluding to the Trinity. There is one spirit, right? There's one Lord referring to Jesus and one God and father of all. And there are these three persons in one God. God embodies perfect unity and oneness. And yet there is a diversity within the Godhead because there are three persons in the Godhead, father, son, and Holy Spirit. So as Paul is thinking about the unity and diversity of the church, uh, his mind automatically also seems to go to the unity and diversity of God himself. Now, on the one hand, we are united. There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And what I find uh, striking about the way Paul expresses our unity is not described as kind of like a shared history or even shared beliefs. Uh, in a sense, uh, our unity is contingent upon factors that are outside of ourselves. So for example, if you think about the illustration of a body, an arm is not united to the body because the arm made a decision to be united to the body. An arm is simply organically connected to the body. Uh, it just is. Now I heard this illustration from uh, Tim Keller once, and I, you know, I, I think it was a, it's a great one it stuck with me ever since uh, I heard it, but he says, there's a difference between a bag of marbles and a bunch of grapes. Uh, in a bag of marbles, you have an aggregation of marbles that are basically occupying the same space. 
uh, in the same bag, but they aren't necessarily uh, connected with one another. They're simply just sharing the same space. And he says, that's an aggregation. But then he says, a congregation is more like a bunch of grapes, uh, grapes that are organically connected to one another. And even though you have these individual grapes, there is a sense in which there's a oneness there, right? There's an organic connection there. And when Paul says that there is one body, and although not necessarily in this passage, but in another passage in 1 Corinthians, he says, we are all members of one body uh, that's organically connected to one another. And therefore, one member is not more important or significant than another. And yet, even though there is this oneness, the grapes, individual grapes might take on different sizes, different shapes, perhaps even different colors and flavors. And that's the diversity part. When Paul's talking about diversity, he's saying, uh, here, he's actually talking about the diversity of gifts within the body. And verse uh, seven says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then he talks about the ascension of Jesus, uh, which is when the Holy Spirit came down and gave these diversity of gifts to, to the entire church, to the entire people of God. And again, it's a little bit more explicit in 1 Corinthians 12, but for our purposes, we can say everybody possesses these spiritual gifts, but not everybody possesses them in the same proportion, and not everybody possesses the same spiritual gifts. But since we are one, that also means one's spiritual gifts are not necessarily more valuable than another. And when you take the, <clears throat> when you take the totality of the different gifts in the church, then this same one united body gets built up, which contributes to its maturity. Now, one of the interesting things to note here uh, is that, you know, in verse three, Paul says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. And that word maintain, that implies that unity has already been achieved. And our job is basically to make sure it doesn't break down. Uh, you know, I had to get my uh, car inspected yesterday. And if you own a vehicle, you have to maintain that vehicle. Uh, that means you have to get oil changes. You have to do things like rotate the tires, change the battery, replace the belts every couple of years, replace uh, brake pads, uh, like those kinds of things. And you have to maintain it so that the car doesn't break down. And even though you're the one maintaining the car, you're not actually the one that put the car together, right? And so in a similar way, God is the one who uh, brought the church together. God is the one who has accomplished it in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been reading about in the previous chapters. Unity has been objectively accomplished by God through Jesus. And therefore, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. But at the same time, Paul also talks about how God gave us apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, right? Before he said maintain, and then later on, he says attain to the unity of the faith, to mature manhood. And so on the one hand, unity is an objective reality achieved by God through Christ. On the other hand, the saints are called to do the work to attain to the unity of faith and to grow in maturity. And the latter uh, point is what's going to lead to our final point on maturity. Uh, there is a sense in which the church ought to be growing up in maturity. And what does that look like? Um, well, according to Paul, it means that we are no longer like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's what he says maturity is. Uh, it used to be the case, and I, I think it is still the case, that kids have a hard time uh, being steady. 
uh, kids, I think, get distracted uh, more easily than adults. Now, uh, I'm going to tell a story about my, uh, my youngest child. And I told Jen to listen to the sermon on headphones so she can't hear because she's a little sensitive, sensitive about uh, her name being mentioned. And it's not even bad. She just doesn't want me to mention her name or talk about her. But I'm going to talk about her. <laughs> uh, you know, this week when I was taking my um, youngest to school, you know, um, I'll have her ride her scooter and then we'll walk over to the school. And, you know, a common refrain coming from me is like, you know, when you ride your scooter, you got to look straight. You got to look at where you're going because when she rides, she gets distracted like all the time. So she'll ride and then uh, a bird will fly by and she'll just ride like this uh, or like a car will drive by or there's will go by a construction site. And then she just starts like going uh, and looking at the side and not looking in front of her. So this week we're on the sidewalk and uh, I don't know, there's like UPS or FedEx person right? Left their hand truck with packages, like in the middle of the sidewalk. And so she's like scootering and then she gets distracted and she looks to the side and I go, I go, watch out, watch out. And she goes, boom, right, right into the hand truck. And, um, you know, she was fine, but I reminded her, you know, that's why it's important to, to know where you're going, right? To make sure you're on path, to make sure your, your focus, your direction is where it should be. Uh, but the thing is, you know, my words are wasted because she's still going to be distracted. And no matter how many times I tell her, right, she's still a child. She's still a toddler. And so the nature of being a toddler, you, you get distracted. You haven't matured yet. And so you're going to uh, run into obstacles and have accidents because right, your focus is going to be in all these different places. Uh, immaturity for the church means you aren't focused on what you should be focused on, which is this glorious gospel mystery that has been preached to us through the apostolic witness. And so you get drawn to other doctrines. You get drawn to these other narratives that run counter to God, the lies and the schemes of the devil. And Paul's exhortation is to grow up and to be rooted in the person and in the work of Christ. And if we are rooted in a person, then we can't be divided because Christ cannot be divided. Now, the other thing that happened after my youngest ran into the hand truck is uh, she started to pout, right? She was upset. I was like, oh, oh you okay? And then I said, see, you know, this is why you got to look forward. You can run into things. And then she went like this, <clears throat> right? In the middle of the sidewalk. <clears throat> and then she turned away from me. And, you know, people are walking by us. And uh, if you're a parent, I'm sure you've been in that situation. And she's immovable. And uh, I'm like, all right, time to go now, right? Let's go. <laughs> she's like, <clears throat> And she would refuse to move. And, uh, you know, I was like, it's like one of those things like, okay, come on. Or you start off gentle and then you, you, you go to bribing. All right. You know, if we go home, you know, I'll give you a snack. And then it gets, come on, go, we got to move now. <laughs> right. So it was kind of one of those situations. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's, again, she's like very, very sensitive and um, something my wife and I realized with her and we, we can't, uh, we can't do that trick where you kind of pretend to walk away and then, you know, the kids will get scared and they follow you. So with our youngest, we pretend to walk away and she doesn't follow us. So we, we would actually lose her. So we don't do that. So basically what I have to do is I'm just basically waiting out the tantrum until she is ready to start moving again. And I guess the nice thing about her is she, she gets the over things like relatively quickly because she gets distracted by something else. Right now, I want you to imagine for a minute, the situation is reversed. Imagine I, as the adult uh, react to something that happened to me and I start to pout and do what she did. And I go, hmm. 
right? Oh, Pastor Sam, you know, you should, you should not do X, Y, and Z, right? You tell me that. And I go, <laughs> and I turn around. Uh, that's just nasty, right? That's disgusting. You would not expect a mature adult to act like a four-year-old or as a toddler. But that's what immaturity looks like. And that's what Paul would say a divided church looks like, right? It's like an adult acting like a toddler. That is, that is not who you are. That is not who I have made you to be in the person and in the work of Christ. Paul's been saying God through Jesus has made us to be one and has made us to be glorious because as the body, our head is Christ himself. And yet when we neglect the unity of the body, uh, which means when we lack humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love, even with those folks who uh, we completely disagree with, even with those folks who are on the polar opposite end of the spectrum as us, Paul would say, then we betray who God has made us to be. And that's just nasty, right? So what does maturity look like? Well, there's one practical tip at the end, uh, which is where we'll conclude our sermon. Uh, verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, right? Speaking the truth in love. Truth and love are necessary for unity and maturity. And one of my old counseling professors, he once wrote an article where he said, you know, controversy, even the good for good causes, uh, controversy tends to create tunnel vision within us. And we focus on a single mountain and we lose sight of the, the entire mountain range. And even if we are right in that controversy, truth becomes narrowed and narrowed truth ultimately is unbalanced truth. And narrowed truth becomes half truth and broadly false. Narrowed truth loses love and the redemptive modus operandi. Uh, you see, truth without love fails to be truth, and love without truth fails to be truth as well. You, you really need both uh, to be truth, and you need love to be love. Um, that's a danger of, I think, probably speaking through social media, uh, especially when you're limited by characters, and especially when it's like a one-way conversation kind of. You just kind of send it out into the internet, and then there's no like real dialogue, and there's no conveying of, uh, uh, I guess, character or tone or anything like that. You just have people speaking truth, but rarely are you able to see a demonstration of love. And that brings us back to the beginning. You know, love demonstrates humility, gentleness, forbearance, and patience. And it is only when we are able to speak the truth in love where conflict can actually start to have a redemptive value. Because conflict is not an entirely negative thing or a bad thing. Uh, conflict can serve an important function in terms of bringing about greater unity within human relationships. But conflict without truth and love, it becomes like an acid that tears apart the bonds of unity. Uh, the church is glorious. And ultimately, that's, that's the point of this series. Uh, that's what I want to get across by going to the book of Ephesians. The church is glorious because God is glorious. And that's one of, um, you know, that's something, especially, uh, I don't know, post-pandemic that I think we have to remind ourselves of and, and remember the church is important. And uh, we will only be able to see that is glorious when there is charity, when there is unity in diversity, when there is maturity. And we will only see its glory when those within the church are speaking the truth and love and growing up in every way into the head, into Christ. 
And so I do pray that uh, that can be us. Uh, but of course, um, you know, our hearts are always even beyond ourselves, but just for all churches, um, all across New York and all across the U.S., all across the world, uh, coming out of a uh, such a divisive season in life, uh, I do hope and pray that the church can rise up and display what God has made us to be. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for uh, the gift of the church, and we thank you, God, that you know, as, as you call us to uh, embody some of these things like patience and humility and forbearance and love and gentleness, uh, you don't call us to do these things um, from a vacuum, but you give us the resources. Uh, you have given us Jesus Christ himself who has demonstrated these things to us, uh, things that we have received and experienced from, uh, from you, that you yourself have broken down the biggest wall of hostility and you've allowed us to come uh, into fellowship with you, that you have taken us as your bride and you have united us to yourself. And so uh, in view of that, uh, I pray God that we would be churches that take that seriously and draw out the implications of that, um, not only in our minds, but in, in our hearts, and that that would uh, convey itself in the ways that we treat uh, others, especially those that um, we would say are polar opposites to ourselves. And we pray God that as that happens, um, the church would be a witness, um, not to itself or not to how great uh, we are as churches, uh, but ultimately we want to be a witness to how great you are and uh, the work that you've done in Christ. And so I pray in our actions, in our unity, uh, your churches, your body, uh, your people will display the gloriousness of this gospel uh, that we treasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.